This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm joined as ever by David Hughes. How are we doing, mate? I'm very good, thanks Josh. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. <laughs> um, but we must immediately address last week in terms of the audio. Apologies, we know what happened. Um, I was reassured that we were over it. Um, and we upgraded the mics and all that sort of stuff. Thought that was the issue, it wasn't. So last week we, we know there were some audio problems. We have addressed it. And it really, definitely this time, should not happen again. Um, it happened in a pretty bad episode, considering Thiago and Jota. But as I said, it shouldn't happen again. But this week, we may encounter a slight issue because I'm currently working at home in a house that's currently getting stuff done to it in terms of decorations and all that sort of stuff. So um, there might be a bit of noise. Ignore it. It's Everyone's okay. <laughs> um, but we'll, we'll press on anyway. So just, hopefully... Can I just... Sorry, Josh. Can I just on. add on that? That... Um, Obviously, last like what what Josh is saying there is completely true. Like it's been something we've been working on for a few months now in terms of improving the audio. We've uh, upgraded all the equipment, and last week had nothing to do with it. It was basically uh, internet issues on a standing producer. Not to throw yeah. them under the bus, but I'm sure they won't mind. I think they were using dial-up rather than broadband. <laughs> uh, but so anyway, long story short. We never normally ask this, but, you know, a few people kind of give it the, the show once they have a review on the back of that, and it, it hurts our producer guy's feelings, shall we say. So, <laughs> no, if you do enjoy the show, can you can you leave nice reviews and, you know, five stars if possible this time just to just to make up for last week? We never, ever asked that before, but as I said, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think Guy took his heart a little bit. So, yeah, um, but as Josh yeah, it, it shouldn't happen again. Yeah, it was internet issues, it was lagging problems and it it shouldn't happen again, it won't happen again. So we should be at good quality studio standard now moving forward, which is good. Um, okay. And we're going to talk today about the Arsenal game. We're going to look ahead to Aston Villa and we're going to have a little look at the state of play at the minute because a few games have been played and although the window isn't shut yet, shuts in five days, I think, there's probably enough there for us to go at in terms of just, just general shouts sort of thing. So, yeah, we'll come to that. Um, but firstly, the Arsenal game, Dave. Mm. Um, impressed? Yeah, definitely. Wow, yeah. Um, now, if you, if you kind of look at it now, I know we'll get into the specifics of Arsenal, uh, but it, it could have potentially been a bit of banana skin. Arsenal's caused Liverpool a few problems in the last couple of months. Um but you look now with that victory, Liverpool basically had, you know, three kind of uh, dominant wins against sides who, um, you know, are good sides. Leeds United's proven to be a good side. Chelsea away, tough game on paper. Liverpool dominant, and now Arsenal at home. Like they, they're kind of three tough games and three dominant performances, and more importantly, three wins. Yeah, so I initially thought that after the first, say, eight games or so, Liverpool might have been playing catch-up a little bit, um, purely because of the lack of pre-season. You know, Liverpool hadn't made any signs at that stage. Um, and the start was obviously quite tricky. We played Chelsea away. We played uh, 
Arsenal at home. I thought Leeds was a tricky start too. And we've got a few tricky games coming up. Villa away is, is quite hard, I think. Um, so I thought Liverpool would be playing catch-up, but I've, I've just been immediately really impressed by Liverpool's start. We look quite imperious, really few weaknesses. And I think it was shown in the Arsenal game, really. I think um, it was it was pretty much dominant from start to finish, I thought. Um, the expected goals on the day, three, bang on three for Liverpool against 1.2 for Arsenal, uh, 21 shots to four and 67% possession dominated by Liverpool. So I think those numbers pretty much put it into perspective, don't they? Yeah, 100%. Uh, especially when you also consider that one of Arsenal's shots was through a defensive error, uh, Robertson's, that obviously leads to the goal. And then the another one you could probably say would have, should have been offside. I was going to uh, say, it's, it's difficult to put a number on the ones that were offside and the ones that weren't. Yeah, I think we're going to have that problem this but, year, aren't we? Yeah, well, I think Klopp said post-match, something that I wasn't actually aware of, I hadn't even thought about. If, if a move is offside, but the linesman doesn't flag, does he? But if a move is offside and it develops and it goes out for a corner, the corner's still given, you know, even mm. if the attacker's offside. I, that, that's that's flawed, that for me. Like, Yeah, well, the, the same you've just said is something I was going to say. I think it is flawed because then if that corner results in the goal, um, yeah, then, it, you know, obviously that's the, 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 the feat of the purpose. I, I think it should have... Um, we don't talk about this stuff because, you know, it's for everywhere else. But just briefly, I think they should have just kept it the same and that you... You flag if you if you if you're pretty sure it's offside. Like I could yeah. understand if it's right on the you know right on the money and it is really difficult and they have to start bringing lines out. But for example, the Lacazette's first chance, you know that was obviously offside, and I think a capable lines person sees that's offside. Um, so that one could have been flagged easily. Yeah, I mean we don't ever usually do this because I don't like talking about referees and stuff like that, but. I like focusing on the performance of the actual football. But um, just on, on the Mane incident inside, like, I don't know, 90 seconds or whatever it was, what did you think of that? Because I actually thought we were really lucky with mm. that. I mean, the, the, there'll be people listening to this now probably screaming at, the, at their phone or at the screen or whatever, you know, saying, oh, it was fine and that. And it's obviously a matter of opinion. It's the idea behind it. But me personally, I was, when I saw it back, specifically in slow motion, I was worried. Hmm. Yeah, the agree. I wasn't sure if you were going to lead it down the path to being like it was correct decision, but I mean, I wouldn't even say it was definitely a red. I just yeah, think it was... It's, it's from, some, from the perspective of some people, it would be a correct decision. It's, it's not... Yeah. It's one of those that, that's a, a, an orange card, really, almost. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think... Yeah. I you think know, it was just it, dangerous, wasn't it? I think I, yeah. I wouldn't say he's definitely gone to elbow him in the face. No, you know, he's no, not I think he, player. But... I think he's expected contact. I think he's expected yeah. someone to be right, in, right on top of him. But um, yeah. it does I'm look just... like he's gone towards him with yeah. his uh, with his wrist, uh, with his you know elbow. Yeah, because that's kind of Mane's thing, isn't he? So strong and to kind of hold off players. I'm not saying Tierney's this the best example, but to hold off players who are physically bigger profiles. He kind of does this where he uses arms and can't, you know, low sense of gravity the way he moves and things. And nine times out of ten, that would have just result in him kind of stiff arming and, and keeping the defender away. But yeah, I just think it was a, it was almost like a, a series of unfortunate movements that leads to basically a stiff armed elbow in the face. Um, yeah. 
And, you know, as I said, I don't, for one second, think he's, he's meant to elbow him in the face. And maybe that's why the, the referee and the, the VAR team or whatever you call them have opted not to give the red card because you can't understand. But, yeah, I, I agree. I think it was also a little bit uh, fortunate as well. Yeah. I mean, I think I think the initial aggression that he showed probably summed up Liverpool's approach throughout mm. the day, really. Mm. Um, it was really aggressive, high risk. Um assertive sort of thing dominating the pitch pretty much what we've done the past few times we've met Arsenal at Anfield we did it last year with Unai Emery's Arsenal we just completely penned them in for the entire game um, I said it last week I think when we were previewing it they played the midfield diamond I think but one that was basically collapsed into a block they, they allowed Trent and Robertson freedom to flanks this approach was a little bit different it wasn't a diamond and stuff like that it was probably a little bit of better suited to causing Liverpool issues, but Liverpool was just too good for them issues to, to emerge, really. Um, I think from the perspective of Arsenal, they seem to have one main attacking channel, really, and that was that was to build from the back, even though Liverpool were going quite relentless, to build from the back at least one time, beat the press, and then when you beat the press, you kind of in on Liverpool's last line, and the idea would be for for Obama Young probably to, to finish a move exactly how they did in the Community Shield when um, I think the ball plays to Bellerin on the flank, Bellerin plays down the line to Saka, Saka switched the place to Obama Young and Obama Young scored. I think this this time around it looked like they were focusing on Liverpool's um, on their right, on their left a little bit more, sorry, down the, the side of Trent and Salah trying to build using Taney and then Obama Young but you know, it just it didn't really work, did it? Um, no. Even though it was, it's probably one of the few um, actually, you know, attacking tactics you can come up with to actually get at Liverpool on field. I mean, there's not a great a wealth of options there, really, is he? No, no. There's there's two things really from that. I think firstly, it's probably worth pointing out how even though it was a three-one game, and it did look precarious at times in the second half when it was poised at two-one, and Lacazette has that chance. You know, it was it was very much based on the the XG and those shots um, for and against. It was a it could have been you know five or six really on a on another day, especially if you consider that when Ch uh, Liverpool beat Chelsea last season five two, the XG in that game was about one point four or something, wasn't it for Liverpool? And it just shows that when Liverpool are really efficient in front of goal, you know they can they can get a, a half full. Um, and he probably could have in this game, but it didn't quite work out like that. Um, but yeah, in terms of the attack, it, it does feel like it's it's all it's it's kind of for me. I think Liverpool the best the best chance you've got of scoring against them is beating the line and getting the kind of clear cut one on one. But it's just so hard to achieve it that it's kind of I don't know how to articulate this point. It's if you can get it right, it's you know it's good and it it tends to be a high quality chance, but it's just so hard to get right that that's why it's, uh, so many teams struggle. Yeah, because uh, that's all they really focus on. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting actually when you're saying that because it, it makes it made me think of the the exact approach that Leicester used maybe against against City on the Sunday I think it was, and you could argue it was pretty similar in terms of sitting in a, in like a mid to low block sort of thing. Um, and hoping to, when you get the ball, play through the press, get onto the last line, 
and hopefully get the odd clear cut chance every every twenty minutes maybe while being dominated. Hmm. And I think that you could argue Leicester are maybe a little bit better at than Arsenal are at the minute. But I think the difference in how Liverpool coped with that high risk defending in comparison to City, not just Liverpool's last line in comparison to City's last line, but the, the system as a whole. Liverpool just look a lot more watertight to me, a lot more. Um, yeah, that, there's no better way for that really. There's no, there's no, there's no leaks. There's no holes. I mean, Arsenal did get through once. It was a good, a good move actually. Xhaka's pass was great. Lacazette plays it off immediately with his first touch, I think, and he actually scored from it, albeit from a Robertson mistake. Um, and then it bounces over Allison, unfortunately. But you know, all that sort of stuff just comes together. So you could argue that they maybe wouldn't have scored that. If it was to materialise, you know, nine other times it was one down. That was just one times out of ten and ended up going in the net. But just a comparison to City, which we're going to do towards the end of the podcast anyway. But I think the comparison there and how difficult it is to pen a team in for virtually 90 minutes. It is really, really hard. And I think that's why Klopp at the end of the match had a little bit of a goal at Roy Keane, I think. Just simply because Keane mentioned that, you know, in a few moments, Liverpool were a little bit sloppy, but... This was part of my point against Leeds in terms of when you're playing such a high-risk game and you're playing against good quality attackers and that, you can't expect to be in complete control for 90 minutes. You know, mm-hmm. there's going to be the odd moments. And even the odd moment that Arsenal had, it was, they weren't particularly big, really. No, no, it's a really good point. And I think what, what Liverpool are doing <clears throat> and do and have done for a while is, you know, you're talking about that... that, that the highest tier of football, by the way, at the Premier League. It's, you know, it's arguably the best league in the world and Liverpool competing at the very top of it. And on that basis, I think it's 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 virtually impossible to expect a team to not concede any chances every week. It doesn't matter who, who you're playing. It's just you're playing the best footballs from across the world. So it's going to happen. But I think what Liverpool do really well is the um, they just, they're so... They restrict shots to such a low amount. Um, I mean, what is it over the last three games? I'm sure I made a note of it. Well, I'm, uh, I'm just checking now. Actually, the, the shots against this season that teams are averaging. But while whilst we have a look at that, I'm pretty sure it was only four against Chelsea and Arsenal. Now, you know, a lot of dominant sides and the best sides tend to win games by taking the most shots and therefore having the best chance of converting them into goals. But what Liverpool is saying to the opposition is, you know, we're not going to give you many shots. We're going to give you one or two. And then they're putting the pressure on the opposition to convert those one or two chances. And that's what the, that's kind of what we saw uh, with Lacazette in the second half. You know, everyone talked about how, how that was a kind of big chance, but it was really... I know we scored earlier on as a result of a defensive mistake. Um, but if we disregard the offside one, that was just kind of the biggest chance really in the game and the pressure's on to convert it. You know, he, he, he probably, even as he's running on goal, he's about to take that chance. In these kind of microseconds, he's probably thinking, I'm not going to get another one here, I need to score it. And all that just, I think, weighs on a, on an attacker's kind of um, behaviours and the, the, the decision-making. Uh, that's what Liverpool do really well, restrict your shots and they put so much... Uh, pressure on the ones that the teams do create that they, they struggle to convert them. Yeah, well, if you think of the actual shot that Lacazette does take, he, he does kind of scuff it a little bit. He doesn't really connect with it particularly well. It's just a case of with Alisson already being on his way down, 
it just unfortunately bounces over. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think Lacazette means to finish like that. No, um, and, the se- and the second one, the finish isn't good on that either. He kind of, it looks like he's torn between trying to chip and yeah. it just somewhere in between. And, you know, Alisson does well to stay up, but he also makes it easier for them, I think. Yeah, so um, in terms of the Premier League then, so shots faced per match, obviously with three games in, shouldn't really be doing this, but Liverpool so far three games in, playing good attacking teams as well, are facing an average of 4.4 shots per match. Um, the next best, funny enough, is Brighton, um, only 6.3 faced per match, and then Everton 7.1. Um, City will probably go towards the top of that list as the season progresses, just because that's that's the, the way they play. You don't get many shots against City, and when you do, they're quite clear cuts. But as you said there, when you, it's similar with Liverpool and teams. You don't get many shots against Liverpool. But the big difference is when you do get shots, they're not easy in comparison to City. They're quite difficult to convert. Um, but yeah, just more on the Arsenal game then. Um, so... We have to have a little word on, on Van Dijk. I think a lot of people came away from the game. I don't know why, because I've, I've, he's already elite as far as I'm concerned, but a lot of people came away from it impressed with Van Dijk's his game on the ball in possession. Um, Arteta spoke about it after the match. I'll get the quote up in a sec. But yeah, I mean, did, you, did he take your attention at all? Because um, I think he was certainly certainly used by Liverpool on the day. I think I, I, I thought myself during the game that Liverpool went a bit longer than usual quite often. Hmm. But then, you know, that's that's the way to bypass teams trying to cut off your, your passing options, isn't it, in, within defence? Um, look, look, and I mean, we, we've we raved about Van Dijk so much on this show, probably more than in other places. Um, and it goes back to the those kind of terms that we've used when we've said, you know, Liverpool a little bit like a Swiss army knife, they've got kind of multiple ways to get at you. And it, it felt like in a, in, in a different way, articulated a little bit differently. That felt like what Arteta was saying. You know, Arteta was saying we had a game plan. You know, we wanted to cut off um, certain passing lanes, we wanted to press in a different way uh, or press within different ways. But the problem was, you know, they go one way, they cut off one option and Van Dijk would just pull out like a 40-yard ball um, up to the attackers that was, you know, on the money, you know, perfectly executed. And Arteta a little bit was kind of shrugging his shoulders as in like, you know, what more could could we have done? You know, we yeah, couldn't, we couldn't have do. done it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, just trying to get up his, his passing network here, um, but I'll work on that in a sec. Uh, but the quote that he said was, um, so they have different weapons when you go to the opposite side, as in up Liverpool's end of the pitch and do a high press perfect. They have Van Dijk and he plays a 60-yard pass into Salah's chest and they are out. That's quality. Um, I thought it was a really interesting little quote because it, it does kind of offer insights into what, into what you've just said. As in, from an opposition perspective, it can be to the extent that you, you do high press perfectly as a team, you do something perfect and Liverpool still have a solution, if you like, an answer. And those that listened to the podcast last week when we were speaking about Thiago and stuff, I referenced Thiago quite frequently as a, a solution, a problem solver sort of thing. Liverpool have been really, really good over the years at just consistently adding problem solver after problem solver. Um, 
and Van Dijk will be deemed to be a problem solver in terms of the defensive side of the game. He offers Liverpool solutions in possession as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it. He does. I, I think it spoke volumes that after the game, Arteta for me is quite ambitious, and he, you know, he doesn't hold back if he's not happy with a performance or a defeat. You know, I've seen it a lot in his kind of short spell as a as a manager at, at Arsenal, but there was almost a um, just an acceptance. There didn't seem to be any sort of grievance with the results at all. He didn't mm. seem he, he didn't even seem disheartened after his team getting beat. It was kind of I think he knew deep down he was like, well, our game plan was spot on. We didn't really do anything wrong. It's just <clears throat> sadly you, there's nothing you can do to to stop stop Liverpool when they um, when they're performing like this and when you know the likes of Van Dyke pulls sixty yard passes into chests. There's nothing you can do. No, no, I totally agree. Can you see what I've shared? Yeah, we can. Yeah, so that that's his passing network from the day. <clears throat> um, as you can see, a lot of diagonal passes in the direction of Mohamed Salah down here. But I think I think he's also he's also prone, maybe with a bit less succession, to to doing these to, to Manic on, on his own side. Really, that's the side that he typically plays on the left, and like, but he's he's. He's capable of playing those those over the top. So if you press Van Dijk to the left, he's playing one of the types of passes to, to, to Mane or Salah. If you press him to the right, he's playing the opposite side. So it, it's just about those solutions. That that, that pass to Mane, we we actually seen, you know, against against Bayern Munich a few years back in the Champions League. Obviously, it resulted in Liverpool scoring, opening the, the scoring against against Bayern at, away from home, when Mane kind of lobbed uh, Manuel Neuer. And yeah, it's just it. I, I think uh, Lindis was speaking about about Thiago last week, and he said um, one one quote that I specifically liked that he said is that we we want players in all positions that can play the last pass. I thought that was really really interesting quote because um, I wrote a piece for for Liverpool dot com a while back on like the concept of Liverpool and signing just dangerous players no, no matter where they are on the pitch they have to have attacking qualities they have to be dangerous even Allison, you know van dyke left back right back fabinho defensive midfielder he scored two goals from, from 30 yards for liverpool and he's prone to playing them little dinked passes over defensive lines um liverpool have got just dangerous players all over the pitch and that, that last line quote i think sums up what liverpool have, have created and the problem with Van Dijk, really. Mm. Um, just the last, the last thing on the Arsenal game, and that I want to touch on, was the the high line stuff. Um, you actually tackled this a little bit, didn't you, Dave? I thought the, your offside numbers were really interesting. I thought that's not something I, I thought to look at. So uh, I'm not sure if you want to reel them off now. For those that haven't seen it. Yeah, I'm just I'm thinking maybe well, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'll I'll bring up the. The visualization for people watching on YouTube, but I'll also talk through it. So, uh, you know, people who are just listening, let me just um, present uh, ourselves. Yeah. So basically, what I did was because um, th this kind of debate's been going on for a while now, hasn't it? Can you see that? Okay, Josh. Yeah. 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 So this debate's been going on about the high line for a while. Like I remember last year. Um, obviously ourselves, we, we can't. Yeah, that was going to say that then, yeah. Yeah, for Liverpool.com, where we, you know, all contributed and, 
you know, give our opinion on it. Um, but there does seem to be a theme that kind of Liverpool have brought it in again. It's suddenly brand new again, and it's on the back of buying success or you know buying doing it. And you know I, that isn't the case. Um, Total nonsense. Yeah. So I looked into it anyway, and um, Liverpool had roughly one hundred and forty-one um, offsides for last season. So that's a free kick awarded as a result of an offside. Um, that worked out roughly around uh, 3.71 per 90. Um, it was 52 more than Bayern, um, who obviously deployed this high line as well. And then 42 more than any other Premier League side. Um, and as I said, if you break it down to a per 90 basis, Liverpool are getting roughly, this was as, as of last season, but we'll touch on this season in a second. They're getting roughly around 3.71 offside. Pay ninety in their favour, um, you know. Bayern, it's about two point six two. Then bizarrely, West Ham two point six one, um, and then Man City two point one one. Who also play a high line, but it's interesting that even with the you know delayed flagging for offside this season, based on the three games so far, um, Liverpool on course to hit roughly one hundred and thirty nine uh, offsides for a game. Uh, this season so I think what that really kind of captures I did say on here is you know sometimes it does look bad uh, to watch and it looks like they're giving away big chances but uh, the reality is that it, it just highlights you know how effective it is um, especially when you know that VAR uh, is obviously going to capture any any offsides or you know attack is straying so that just really I guess was me trying to capture just how effective this high line is and you know, basically, don't forget, every time you win a free kick, you've pulled possession back to your team and you can then set the team up again to, to basically attack. Yeah, I remember speaking about this last year on the pod. For I think it was quite a few episodes, to be honest. There was just a big question mark attached to whether Liverpool were playing a high line and all this sort of stuff. And I, I remember using offside numbers really early in the season, like the first five games, just to capture how we were... We were getting more offside decisions than last season. Maybe that offers an insight into the high line stuff. Um, I don't specifically think Liverpool's line is higher. It's just a case of like, in certain moments, I thought that we were a bit less reluctant to, to retreat and to drop off. And instead, we were pushing forward to catch a few players offside. Hmm. So I think, but you know, you spot on there, really interesting numbers. Uh, this is from an Opta piece that I've read recently. It says, uh, so Liverpool have the highest average sequence start line of any team in the Premier League this season at 58 metres from their own goal. Um, again, just a little bit of a number there that offers a further insight into Liverpool's tendency to be aggressive and be high risk, really. But they've got the players, crucially the defensive players and the watertight system to do it without being punished as frequently as, as Man City, for example. Mm. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. We'll move on to to Aston Villa. Um, any general thoughts on on Villa, Dave? Any general thoughts on you know whether this is a tricky opponent, whether this is an easy win, you know, whatever. Um, <clears throat> without skipping to predictions at this stage, I will say that I think it's interesting that they're still undefeated, but. 
the minute you kind of scratch beyond the surface, you know, you think they've they've played one less game from an already small sample size of three for everyone else. So they played two games and I think it's really difficult to win two back-to-back games in the Premier League, irrespective of opposition. But for me, at least anyway, they've, they've played two of the maybe worst teams in the division in Fulham and Sheffield United. You know, people might be kind of shocked at me saying Sheffield United, but I just think they, they look a little bit uh, lost so far this season. And yeah, I think that they've played two of the worst teams. Admittedly, they've won, but I do think it's going to be a, a different story this weekend coming up against Liverpool. Yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, I think Fulham are the worst team in the league, comfortably. Um, and I think against Sheffield United, Sheffield United had 10 men for some of the game. I can't, I think it was most of it actually, because I had John Egan in my fantasy. (laughs) 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 Um, And even with 11 men, Sheffield United, particularly on the attacking side, are very, very shy. Um, I think they took the fewest shots in the league last season. Hmm. Um, Most of their results, positive results, originate from clean sheets. So if you score first against them, you you're pretty much you're not going to be okay, but you know you're, you're in the driving seat certainly. Um, but yeah, so two wins from two, despite only playing twice, they're actually fourth in the table with six points. And the reason they're fourth in the table is because the goal difference is plus four, uh, yet to concede. But again, for me, they've played the worst team in the league. Although Fulham can attack to an extent. And Sheffield United do can't attack. And they've got the lowest expected goals against in the league so far, total. But again, mm. to play one fewer game. Even with an extra game played, though, their expected goals against is quite good. Um, I think they've only been expected to concede so far after two matches, a, a total of 1.6 goals, I think. Mm. But I'd expect mm. them to concede at least 1.6 against Liverpool alone. Yeah. Um, but the defence, I do think since since lockdown, to be honest, since the restart, the defence does seem to be a, a lot, a bit more transformed. We've got a new goalkeeper as well. A new, I think it's a right back, Matty Cash. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's a bit of improvement there. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So I actually, for the Analytics 5's new newsletter, and um, just after this, the, the lockdown, uh, sorry, the the post-lockdown fixtures ended. So basically when the season finished, um, I did look into Villa's defensive numbers and they, they, I mean, they did definitely improve, uh, maybe with a bit more. I feel like it was a good period to coach during that lockdown. Uh, so they obviously must improve uh, on the training pitch because you know, in, in, in about a 10-game sequence, um, Villa fought, faced seven of the teams who finished in the top half of the table. And you can see they're just 11 goals, um, which was obviously less than Liverpool. But, uh, you know, it was a little bit different circumstances for Liverpool. Um, but, yeah, the, the expected goals against and their post-shot expected goals against numbers, you know, on a pair 90 basis, dramatically decreased compared to the season averages. I think for XG against, it, they were averaging around 1.97 per 90 for post-shot XG against, it was 1.67. Um, but then in this period, you know, after lockdown, 
Uh, expected goals against went to just uh, 0 0.85 and I think post-shot expected goals against went went down to 0 0.99. So, you know, it's effect effectively knocking off like a goal uh, per game that they were, you know, expected to concede. So, uh, definite improvements um, and they do look a better side defensively. Yeah, and in addition to that, as I said, they've signed a new goalkeeper who I've looked at quite a bit Simply since his um is the few starts he got for Arsenal, and his numbers look good. Have you, have you actually checked him, Dave? Um, I, I, I think I had a, a glance at Arsenal, but I, in terms of what what he's done so far, I, I think I, I checked this one. He's only faced three shots. Um, so although they were two really good saves, one was a, a penalty and one kind of tipped one onto the bar. But yeah, I, uh, I you might have to fill me in on his Arsenal numbers. Yeah, no, last season, I can't remember how many games he played exactly, but he overperformed in them by a total of four goals, I think, 4.2 goals or something like that. And I think if you were to extrapolate those numbers over the course of 38 matches, it would have been an overperformance if he kept the same standard, at least, of of 12 goals. Mm -hmm. and that would have that would have been enough to to place him top of the Premier League. The, the person with the most overperformance, I think, was Martin Dubravka at Newcastle. I think he overperformed by ten. Um, so Emmy Martin is based on his short, very short sample size. I think it was about nine games, maybe something like that. He overperformed by four four point two goals. I think it was, and would have been twelve over the course of the season. So I'm interested to see how he does this season. Mm. At Villa with a full 38 game campaign. I mean, I watched him the other day against Fulham, and he was lucky to be honest. He, he fumbled one right in front of, you know, in the goal mouth, and it got put in, but it got taken back for a Mitrovic foul. I wasn't too sure that it was a foul. Um, it's the first mistake I've seen him make, though, since he mm -hmm. started getting games in the Premier League. So that's probably one to watch, considering Liverpool's finishing, Liverpool's attack. Emmy Martin is facing. End of the shots, probably Liverpool are averaging about 19 a game, I think. Mm. Um, just in terms of shots per 90, actually, what teams are averaging? Villa are averaging the joint second most with um, 15 per 90. Mm. Um, but I think this captures basically, I don't really know what to make of Villa at the minute. I feel really uncomfortable predicting how Villa are going to do. Because their start has been really, really easy. They've only played two games. They've had a window that we're going to get to that I think is decent. Um, 15 shots per 90 is great. Their expected goals against is great. But you just don't know, do you? There's a big no. question mark there for me still. We need more games, I think, with Villa. Yeah, yeah that's it. It's, it's certainly in their case. I mean, it's, it's hard to make any you know, concrete assumptions at this stage anyway, but especially when talking about a team who have played, you know, one game less, um, I, I have to agree. I think they look good now, but given the, the opposition they faced, I'm, uh, I'm inclined to, as I said, I think it'll be, it, it'll be so different against Liverpool. As You know, Martinez, for example, we're trying to gauge how good he is. He's, he's only faced, you know, three shots on target in two games against... Liverpool, he probably faced down the first, you know, twenty minutes, um, and uh, that actually leads onto a bigger point of I wonder how he'll do being a lot busier because he was obviously extremely busy. Uh, sorry, Villa tended to concede a lot of shots last season, 
certainly before lockdown, they conceded by far the most. Um, it'll be interesting to see if they get anywhere near that again, how he copes with that kind of quantity. Um, but yeah, I agree. I think we don't know anything about Villa yet. It's going to be an interesting game on Sunday, shall we say. Yeah, I was going to say that this this could maybe act as the acid test, but maybe it's, I don't I don't I wouldn't even say that. I don't even think it's the acid test because it's it's Liverpool at the end of the day. You would expect to lose even if you play well. The acid tests will be in the next few weeks probably, but yeah, it, I think Villa have I put it this way. I'd be surprised if they're in for the same fight of fight for survival again. Mm. And at this, if they finished maybe as high as. Ninth, tenth. I don't think I'd be that surprised, um, mm. but they could also finish fifteenth. I mean, last, <laughs> last season they did have the worst defense in the league for most of the season. Mm. They had no attack whatsoever. We might as well touch on the window that they've had now. They've signed mm. Ollie Watkins, Burton, Sayori, Matty Cash, and Emmy Martinez for about seventy-five million, according to transfer market, which is for me a bit much. Mm. But at the same time, for me, those are four hits that I, I, I don't think you'll have to go and buy. Say, for example, with, I think they signed Samata in January. Mm. You buy a player like that, they're buying another striker six months later. They bought Wesley last summer. I know we got injured, but they bought a striker again six months later. So mm. I think although they've overpaid a little bit for those four players, I don't think they'll have to buy another striker another right back, another goalkeeper for a few seasons now. Mm. Um, which tells me that it's it should be a good window then, even though they've paid a little bit. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a little bit less risk as well. You know, you think uh, Watkins has, has been doing it efficiently in the Championship. So you think even if he can't replicate the numbers he was doing in, in the Championship, if he does even, you know, a half or two thirds of that, then he's, he's going to prove to be a good forward. Traore, I think he had 10 goals and assists last season, didn't he, at uh, Lyon, um, which is decent output. Maybe a little bit more risk with him, but you'll see. You know, Cash looks really good. I think he could have went to a number of clubs. And then we've already touched on Martinez. Obviously, as well, just before we come on, they've signed Ross Barkley as well on loan for the season. I was, was going to ask you about that. What are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I think it's not. I think it's a fairly good move for them, actually, because... You know, what's, what's Bar although Barkley does have some flaws, what's he good at? He's good at progressing the ball. Um, you know, I felt like Grealish was weighed down a lot with those responsibilities last year. You're going to have Barkley in there who can kind of carry the ball for you through the middle, uh, you know, through the lines. He's also, he's, he's, he's got good technical ability as well. So whilst his decision-making can be a little bit off sometimes, he does tend to create chances for you. Um, I think he's got a good physical profile through the middle as well. So I think he's actually a good move on loan. Um, so I'd probably throw him in as another kind of decent move for Villa, you know, in a, in what looks to be a decent window. Yeah, the, the, the standard of sign that they've got in this window just feels a lot a lot better than last year. Last year, they just seemed to sign a load of a load of no marks, really. Mm. Um, I mean, they, they needed to, they didn't have a squad. So I understood why they did it. Um, and this season, it feels like they've had a year in the Premier League, they've now got an opportunity to buy Premier League quality. And they're doing it for me. Even Traore, you know, he, he spent time at Chelsea, he knows, he knows English football. Sure. Mm. Quite a success at Leon, I thought, you know, a decent player. I think he was linked with a few clubs. They were linked with uh, Rashica, actually. Did you see oh, that? Really? Yeah, from uh, yeah. Germany. 
Yeah, I think I've mentioned him on the show once or yeah. twice. Uh, the Werder Bremen attacker, but they ended up going for Traore in the end. I think yeah. uh, there was a kind of universal agreement that because he stayed up, uh, he kind of... I mean, I don't know, is he still moving, actually? I don't know, but I think that kind of... He, he went from being, if he went down, being a kind of easy you know, play to probably purchase to then just being a little yeah. bit more difficult because he was staying up. Yeah. No, I think I think it may make a good point on Barley there as well. Um, to be honest, he, he comes across a, a little bit similar to John McGinn in terms of the profile and stuff. Bit of an mm-hmm. all, well, a little, little bit less all action than McGinn, but mm-hmm. similar in terms of his ball carrying and all that sort of stuff. Being able to carry Phil to the final third, being a bit of a threat from, from long range, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, you know, I think he's a good. I do think he's a good move. Um, I don't know if he'll play on Sunday. I don't know. What do you reckon? Could be a little bit too soon. Like then again, yeah. he did come on against Liverpool a couple of weeks ago, didn't he? He's never a nice presence either when he plays against Liverpool. He's always trying to put a foot in and injure someone. Well, the, yeah, that's the thing is, he's. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know how. He's still a staunch Evertonian, apparently, isn't he? So it always seems to be a big game. And obviously, he, he kind of. A lot was made about the fact he scored in the FA Cup game, didn't he? When Chelsea beat Liverpool earlier earlier in the year, um, so I think he does always have that kind of you know extra motivation, which is bizarre because he's he's a very he's pretty much universally unliked at Goodison Park these days. But I think he's still trying to cling. I actually remember being at an Everton game just quickly, and he uh, he'd been booed the whole game for Chelsea. And as he got subbed off, he, he started giving like a round of applause to the home fans, you know, as if like former players do when they've had a fantastic reception. And uh, yeah, I think he's living in denial a little bit. But yeah, you know, he could be a he could be a little bit of a thorn in the side on Sunday that Liverpool need to just keep quiet. So predictions for that one then? Oh, I still really I can't see anything but a Liverpool win. And I don't think it'll be as tight as last season's. That's the you know the kind of two late goals to make it two one. I uh, I think you may be looking at three nil. Okay, <laughs> and this is a weird one for me because Villa, in my opinion, are a lot stronger than when we last went to Villa Park. Mm. But I think Liverpool will remember that game, and I think Liverpool will go into this game really focused, knowing that it was really tough once we went a goal behind. So I think Liverpool will win two nil. Um, because they will turn up with absolute focus that we've seen against Arsenal and against Chelsea, even though this is now Villa. Mm. I think Liverpool will really turn up. Um, and I think Villa will, as I said, cause maybe even more of a threat than last season. But yeah, it'll be a, be a tricky game. It'll be interesting to see how Villa go, but I just fancy Liverpool to be really on it because of what happened last season. Mm. So for the last 15 minutes, I think, because we're getting... We're getting notifications from the producer. Um, <laughs> so, the last 15 minutes, maybe a bit of a short as a pod, but the current state of play in terms of the title, the league, all that sort of stuff. Any general thoughts after the first two or three games, depending on the team? Plenty of signings have now happened. We'll probably address it again next week a little bit if something mad happens, like, say, you know, United get Sancho or something like that. Um, but yeah, how are things looking? I think just on the silence point, what I will say is it does feel like there's been a lot of quality brought into the division. And not just, you know, by top teams. I mean, across the board, like, 
know, easy one, Thiago. Uh, I think he's a good signing. James Rodriguez looks a really good signing. Um, you've got uh, Castellani, is it? Pronounced that Leicester. Yeah. Yeah, Castagne. Like um, Gabriel Arsenal, uh, you know, Chelsea have brought. I know it hasn't quite worked for them just yet, but they've got Werner, Havertz, Ziacek. Then you've got, um, you know, United brought Van der Beek, who could do well. Uh, I'm probably missing about another 10 there, to be honest, Josh, but it does feel like a lot of good players have come to the uh, division this summer, which yeah. is uh, which is going to be quite good to see and make it a lot more competitive. So, in my opinion, right, in terms of the, the, the current standard in the league and all that sort of stuff, I don't want to get ahead of myself. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> but I feel really, really confident in saying that I, I think Liverpool are going to win the league. And I think it, it could be another that's kind of sewn up by, well, early. I'm not going to put a number on it. I'm not going to put a month on it. I have. I, I put March on it. <laughs> you put March on it, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, yeah, I don't want to get ahead of myself on that, but just just the way the match, the way the season started, and specific, specifically the transfers that have been made by Liverpool and City, I I think Liverpool will go pretty unfazed for for the season. Hmm. I, no, I agree. Yeah, and you know we we, we spoke about it. We're in a chat with me, you, and Christian, aren't we? OG Christian. Uh, and um, he, he, naturally, Christian's forever the pessimistic, despite Liverpool being, you know, what they are now. He's still always convinced that they're going to get beat by like Burnley at home and things. Um, so he's not convinced, but we basically echoed the same thing between us, didn't we, Josh? Where mm. I just, I can't, I can't not see Liverpool in the league. They, they're at very least odds on favourites for me, based on how the season started. You know, the all City are already going to be three points behind. Um, the pool after you know they've played one less game I think haven't they but even yeah. even so they're still going to be three points behind probably already three games in um, I think the recruitment hasn't been as good I think there's a lot of holes to be picked in their side I don't I think Liverpool look completely faultless at the moment so then you're looking at where, who else in the league it's clear now that Chelsea aren't going to be challengers it's, it is going to be a transition season for them United still look out of sorts Spurs aren't going to get me up there. Arsenal, you know, Leicester will probably be top four-ish again. I think Everton might be, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> I think Everton will be maybe top six, you know, based on what I've seen so far. But again, they're not going to win the league. So you're like, who's going to stop Liverpool? I think the only thing that would stop them is if they just fell off a cliff. Because as a lot of people pointed out, it could be a bizarre campaign, couldn't it? With the way it's kind of... Didn't. We had that big break, then we had a few games, then we had no break, no pre-season, started again. If that impacts Liverpool further down the line, then someone else might have a chance. But I agree, based on what we've seen so far, you, you'd, you'd have to be back in Liverpool. Yeah, I mean, my, my logic behind this, you know, going into this season, Liverpool didn't really have any overriding weaknesses um, yet. They have added more solutions than they already had. Obviously, Lovren and Alana have left the club, but Thiago and Jota have been added. Um, Thiago is going to offer, as we said last week, the, the control, the specifically the ball progression from the centre of the park, as opposed to the flanks when when Trent and Robertson get shut down. Mm -hmm. Jota offers that you know 
the um, option for four two three one and the versatility in terms of you know, say for example, Mane's injured or Mane needs a break or whatever, or Liverpool needs to make a sub to change the game on the seventieth minute. Rather than bringing on Origi, you're bringing on Jota. Say for example, days late, days earlier against Arsenal, he comes on. He has arguably three guilt-edged chances. Scores one of them. Should score the earlier one. Uh, so it's a difference in standard there. Whereas if you look at City, for me they had a massive weakness when it comes to defence. The, the sense of their defence for me is is not dominant enough. For, for me, that's that's the biggest. The most important quality for a centre back at Liverpool and City are they dominant? And if the answer is no, they're probably going to struggle with defending 50 yards from goal, all kinds of open spaces against really quick attackers. And although they have addressed it by signing Ache and Diaz, for me, they're not good enough to to solve it. They're, they're just going to cope similarly. To how Stones and Otamendi and Garcia and Laporte have coped. Laporte, I think, copes the best because he's the most well-rounded. But other than Laporte, I don't think Diaz is that great. Personally, we should, probably should have got into his numbers for the show. Maybe we can do that next week. But I remember writing about him for Wolves last season. Obviously, I think he's meant his clients. Yeah, his numbers weren't great, you know. I mean... Defensive numbers you can question, but his numbers weren't weren't that good. I think there was something like thirty five centre backs in the Portuguese league. I think he was like twenty second for aerial dual success, mm. and in the bottom five for defensive dual success in terms of percentage wins. So yeah. you know it, it's a different game when you're playing for Guardiola, and he yeah. look good on the ball and all that sort of stuff. But Liverpool finished eighteen points ahead of this team last season. Liverpool have added Thiago and Jose. City finished 18 points behind, I think it was 18, 18 or 17, and they've added Ake, Torres and Diaz, and they've lost David Silva, lost Otamendi, lost Sane, still haven't replaced company for me unless you're looking at Diaz or Ake, but different different players for me. So just considering all that, I don't see how City have any difference of a season that they did last year in terms of winning the odd game 7-0 and then when it comes to facing a team that can actually play they get opened up mm. yeah As we yeah, that's it. yeah I think um, oh, Diaz for me just feels like a, a decent buy but you wouldn't have really raised your eyebrow had he ended up making the, the move to Wolves but you know if he would have signed for another top 6 club he's not going to be a transformational signing Um I just, for me, I felt like they would have really got the window right this, or at, at least yeah. closer this summer because it was so clear what was wrong last year. I think had they done that, you know, I know it's a tough window with the with the pandemic, but had they done that, then I think they could have been up there again. But yeah, for me, I think you know, ten years ago they might have won the league on the points tally. They're probably going to get this year. I mean, what did they finish on last season? Was it eighty-one? Uh, 81. So, I mean, that can deliver titles in years gone by, but within a different era with Liverpool at the moment. Yeah, well, if you if you look at City there, maybe they finished 81 points, they've added Ache, Torres and Diaz. I think that pushes them up maybe to 85 at a push 90. 
I mean, it's Guardiola, so he, he could get nicely quite comfortably. You never know with, with him, I suppose. But in terms of Liverpool, I think Liverpool will breach 90 points again. Hmm. To get 90 points, you need 30 wins and eight losses. I think Liverpool will will, will do that again. Hmm. So I think for City to, to go for the league, you're looking at over 90 points. And I'm looking at the squad. As I said, I think it's virtually identical to last season, but with two centre-backs at it, it were both fragile when it comes to certain phases of play. So I don't see that much of a difference there. Yeah, Obviously, I also... Yeah, sorry. I was going to say one more big point as well, is I think, you know, when you line up the best players from each side, there's very little to choose from them, but there's one big key difference between Liverpool's top players and, and City's. I mean, both sides are pretty much all, all top players, but the key difference is Liverpool's always seem to be available. You know, they're always playing week in, week out. If you think of some of City's best players, Aguero, injury prone. Now, Jesus, also often injury prone. Then you've got De Bruyne, unbelievable player, but he, he very rarely gives you 38 games over the season. Um, and it, that, that also impacts it because Laporte... I think, you know, Laporte's probably the second best defender, central defender behind Van Dijk in the Premier League. But the problem is that he, yeah. he's, he's not as, as available as Van Dijk. Yeah, I, I saw a stat yesterday. I think it said something like Van Dijk has started. I think it was it was in the 90s, about, about 94 consecutive Premier League matches mm. Van Dijk has started. I think Laporte, I wrote a piece on him. Well, not on him. I wrote a piece on City. shared it on my Twitter if you want to read that this week and I looked at Laporte's numbers. Laporte, since the start of last season, has played 31% of City's available league minutes. That's just not enough for your best centre-back at the club. And the only centre-back you could argue that can cope with the demands that Guardiola puts on the shoulders of his, of his defenders. You know, he asks, he asks a lot of them. And the more you ask of players that aren't good enough, the more you're kind of showing the world their weaknesses as opposed to their strengths. Mm. Um, so yeah, more business can be done in the week, in the five days, but it looks like City are done for the window. Um, and I think my biggest surprise for it is is just that I thought that with the last season being kind of embarrassing for them almost, I thought that they'd go in and just throw money at a short-term fix like a Koulibaly. Mm. Um, you know, someone to just kind of get them back to a, a dominant level for two, for another two seasons, for whatever it, whatever it takes. Mm. The, the, the next one in line was supposedly, I think it was Jules, Jules Koundé, I think is how you say it. Yeah. They didn't get him. So Diaz is like third choice. I know, um, really. No, and if he's third choice, he's clearly not the best available. Is he? And they'll pay something like 65 million for them. Yeah, I felt very desperate, which is one thing you never feel like Liverpool are. No, you never yeah. feel like there's kind of panicking to get it over the line. Whereas yeah. with them, I think he did. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll have to round up anyway. So, yeah, hopefully the audio has been good for this episode. It will be good moving forward. And next week, we'll probably touch on a little bit of the business that gets done in the final week. Um, and then we'll look ahead. In fact, we'll probably do a Q&A next week because we haven't done one for a while and it's the international break. Mm. So we'll look out for that one. Uh, but yeah. thanks for joining us anyway, Dave. Cheers. Cheers, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast.
on the Blood Red Channel.